today we have the privilege of opening up God's Word together, together, and it really is a privilege. We'll be opening up once again to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 25. 1 Samuel, capítulo 28, versículos 3 a 25. Now, this is, this is the book about the king who is, who is God, and then the king the people wanted, who is Saul, and then the king who is after God's own heart, David. And we've been in this sermon series, if you haven't been with us, for about, oh, seven or eight months, and we're coming to the end of it. Last week, we saw that David, who's been pursued by Saul, has been pursued out of Israel and into the land of the Philistines, into exile. And he finds himself in this dire situation where he's actually sort of taken up with the Philistines and, and, and forced to deceive the people around him and put in questionable situations, a really dire situation for him. Yet now here in chapter 28, there's sort of this sudden kickback to Saul, to Saul who had rebelled against God and whose kingship God had rejected. Yet Saul persisted in his role as king, insisted that he should remain king while continuing to live in disobedience to God. And today, he reaches his lowest of lows in 1 Samuel 28. So would you read along with me beginning in verse 3? Now, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how, he's cast, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So then the woman said, who then shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, 
an old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, Because I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore... You also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the women urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants And they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, once again we approach your word and we come to it with expectation. With expectation that we wouldn't merely read words on a page, that we wouldn't merely hear an imperfect person speak, but that through this, you would have your way with us, that you would have your way in us, that you would reveal Jesus Christ to us afresh, that we would encounter him and meet him through these words and have our affections for him renewed, that our faith may be firmly implanted in him once again, that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you this. Before reading this passage, how familiar were you with 1 Samuel 28? A couple here have read this passage before. But let me tell you, back in 2001, most Christians were familiar with 1 Samuel 28. Do you know why? That was the year that the first movie in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, came out, and Christians were in a a fervor 
should Christians watch this movie? Should they not? Should, should, we, should, we, uh, should we forget about this entirely, stay away from it, stay, stay 10 feet away from this at all costs? Or, or is it okay to, to watch these movies and read these books? I, it, was, it was crazy. And then this, this passage was used as a primary evidence for why Christians shouldn't watch those kinds of movies. Now, some good news. The reason that God included this story in your Bible was not primarily to convince you to stay away from Hogwarts Castle. If that was the full point of it, then you really wouldn't have any reason to come here this morning. The point of this passage is far more significant. It's about Saul's heart. It's about where Saul's heart turned when he couldn't hear God's voice. That's what's happening here. It's about where he turned when he wanted something from God and he couldn't get it. So Saul, in desperation, he is desperate. He resorts to evil means to acquire the guidance that he desperately desired. But but the whole issue with Saul's reign was that he had rejected God. And so God had rejected him. And so the appropriate response for Saul would have been for Saul to repent and to seek after God. For God to restore his favor to Saul. We should see Saul crying out to God and saying, God, you've forsaken me. Would you forgive me? Would you restore your smile upon me? But no, Saul falls further into disobedience and does something which is truly wicked. But Saul wanted the results of God's favor. Saul didn't want God's favor. He wanted the results of God's favor. He wanted guidance in this scenario. So let me ask you this. If you're taking notes, even if you're not taking notes, pull out a pen, pull out the notes app on your phone, write this question down and carry it in your mind through the rest of the sermon. Are you seeking the results of God's favor or God himself? This is the question that this passage is intended for us to answer. Are you seeking the results of God's favor or God himself? Not that the first is wrong to seek, but if they're being sought apart from God himself, it leads down a dangerous path a path that we walk alongside Saul in toward destruction. Now, what was the result of God's favor that Saul sought? It was guidance. Guidance apart from God. Okay, Saul sought guidance apart from God. And there will be two points for the rest of this sermon today. First, being the danger of godless guidance. Second, the misery of godless guidance. Or to put it another way, the the danger of seeking God's favor or the results of God's favor outside of seeking God himself and the misery of seeking the results of God's favor outside of seeking God himself. We see that that this is dangerous and it's miserable. So let's jump into the the first point. A little context here. Verse 4, okay, Samuel is dead. The Philistines 
are knocking at the door of Israel, and God is silent. And the Philistines weren't merely engaged in a border skirmish. They were at Shunem. Shunem was in the interior of Israel and right in the middle of it. So if the Philistines had actually won, or if they they did win here in the future in this coming battle, then Saul would be cut off from his northern tribes. It would divide the kingdom of Israel. And Saul sees it, and and he knows what's at stake here. He becomes absolutely desperate. He needed to know what to do. And God was silent. Saul had sought God according to the the, the normal means, still seeking guidance, not God himself. He's, he's, He's wanting to know what to do. But God was silent. And Saul had to have guidance, not not out of a love for God, but out of a fear of making a mistake. And this is critical. So, he asks his servants, look down at verse 3, to find a medium. And verse 3 tells us that Saul had outlawed mediums and necromancers earlier in his reign. And that wasn't just sort uh, sort of a spontaneous ruling that he made, that was born out of Deuteronomy 8. And Deuteronomy 8 is very clear in God's law that that necromancy and divination and other forms of magic like that are an abomination to God. They're forbidden. They're evil. And essentially, magicians, sorcerers, these are people who communicate with the dead. But in, in his desperation, Saul is so desperate for the results of God's favor that, he, favor that he opens a door even to what he knows will drive him further from God. And isn't it interesting in this text that Saul says, hey, servants, go find me a, a medium. And they immediately go, oh, we know where one is. <laughs> They'd been driven from the land, but somehow they knew where they were. Long story short, he goes to the medium in the town of Endor under a disguise. And the medium suspects that it's a trap because she knows that Saul had outlawed mediums and necromancers. But in verse 10, Saul reassures her. Ironically, Saul swears by God's name as he seeks help from a source that God has condemned. And he asks her to bring up Samuel. And the moment that he asks her to bring up Samuel, she recognizes who he is. Because who else would ask to bring up Samuel? The close consultant of the king himself. And she goes, you're Saul. I knew it. And he says, don't worry, just bring up Samuel. I promise you protection. And so she does. And Samuel, surprisingly, does appear. And Saul says to Samuel in verse 15, Samuel, God won't speak to me, and I'm in a desperate situation, and I need to know what to do. And Samuel replies in verse 16, oh, and you just feel the coldness in this. He says, if God won't speak to you, why are you asking me? And in verses 17 through 19, Samuel says, God God told you through me when I was alive that because of your disobedience with the Amalekites, the kingdom has been torn from your hand. And because of your continued disobedience, in tomorrow's battle, you and your sons will die. 
and the Philistines will win. And Israel will fall into the hand of the Philistines. Not what Saul was looking for. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says that the text is not gentle. But it is clear. If you despise God's word, he will take it from you. If you persistently refuse to obey God's speech, you will endure God's silence. That is the danger here. Now, let's deal with a few questions, because this text has questions popping up left and right and all over the place. First, how do we explain this piece of necromancy? I've been, I've been looking ahead to 1 Samuel 28 and going, oh man, soon we're going to get to the, the passage about Samuel and the, and the magician and the necromancer. This is something that, that is not common in Scripture. What do we do with this? Was this fake? Did, did, was, was, did the medium produce something? Did she conjure something that was fake? I, I don't think so. Was this a demonic appearance by Samuel then? I don't think so. It was Samuel. Scripture describes these practices of necromancy, of, of, of contacting the dead. It describes them not as impossible, but as pagan and evil. So it's not that we should read this and go, well, no, it's not possible that, that Samuel was brought up because, because God had said it was an abomination. No, no, he, God hadn't said it's impossible. He said it's evil. So reasonable ex expectation is that God, for his own reasons, must have permitted Samuel to come up in order, in order to speak his word of judgment to Saul. God's word was spoken even if it came through an illegitimate method. So we have to believe that God allowed this to accomplish his purposes in the life of Saul. Now secondly, why is necromancy? Why, why is divination? Why is magic of this kind evil. Why does Deuteronomy 8 and Isaiah 9, for that matter, call it an abomination? Here's why. Because it seeks the power of God apart from the power of God. Because it seeks to, to access the power of God apart from the actual power of God. Or in other words, in, in, in words that have already been used, they seek the results of God's favor apart from God himself. Saul had sought the power of God's guidance without God, and it ruined him. Now, where's the application here? What do, what do we do with this? Are, are you, are you going to go and seek out a medium or a necromancer this week? Probably not. If you are, let's talk. But you probably aren't. So you think, okay, what do, what do I do with this then? Christians regularly seek the power of God apart from the power of God. So we have to see the principle at play here. Christians regularly seek out what amount to magical solutions. And let me just enumerate a few. A few of our attempts to seek God's favor apart from God, to, to access the power of God apart from the power of God, to seek out magical solutions. First, looking for signs or laying out fleeces. Okay, Gideon 
in Judges chapter 6. He, he wanted confirmation from God. So, so he sought confirmation from God by laying an actual lamb's fleece down on the ground. And he said to God, okay, if this fleece is wet in the morning and the ground around it is dry, then, then I'll know your promise is, is confirmed. Okay? God, deal? We good? And you say, well, well, okay, I haven't consulted necromancers and I haven't laid out an actual fleece, so I'm still in the clear here. But the principle at play here is that Gideon was demanding God guide him through a sign that he had devised. He was demanding that God answer him on his terms. And you've done that very thing, haven't you? I have. You might have said, well, God, if I see this happen, then I'll know that you're guiding in this direction. If my pastor preaches three bad sermons in a row, then I know that God is leading me to, to leave this church. Hopefully that's not the case, because, <laughs> ooh boy. Or, <laughs> if, if my girlfriend can remember my favorite restaurant, then I'll know that she's the wife that God has prepared for me. Or God, if you provide a way for this bill to be paid, then I'll know that you're there. Or, God, if I don't hear from you, then I'll be forced to be disobedient. Does that sound familiar? We do this in a million ways. And the trouble with it is that it puts God under our authority. It demands that He speak to us and guide us in our terms. And it seeks the results of His favor over seeking Him. You see that? The second way that, that we're prone to, to seek magical solutions is by interpreting the Bible like its promises are yours to define. For example, God promised Abraham that he'll have descendants as numerous as the stars in Genesis 15.5. And so, I discern from that that God will give me children. And if he doesn't, then he, his promise must not have been true. God promised Israel in Jeremiah 29, 11. You probably know this, this passage. He said, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And so someone decides that that means that God will definitely cure their cancer. And if he doesn't, then he was lying. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And so some have used that to say, if I give monetarily, God will give me more financially wealth, financial wealth than I had before. But did God make that specific commitment through that promise? No. No. He said, if you are generous, the Lord will be generous with you. He did not say exactly how or when or with what. I think in the context of that passage, that passage means the Lord will give to you in peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment and hope and joy and maybe material wealth. I don't know, but he will be generous with you. You know this. God's Word demands that we read every passage in its context and 
understand the intent of the author, both the human author and the divine author, the Holy Spirit. What did God intend with this text? And the problem with interpreting God's promises, however best fits you, is that it treats God's word like a magical spell book to create the destiny that we've dreamed for ourselves. And it seeks and it seeks the results of God's favor over seeking Him. Another way that we seek magical solutions is treating prayer like it's a magical formula. Sometimes when we speak about the power of prayer, we talk about it like there's some force inherent in our words coming from ourselves that can make or break reality. The, the, the name-it-and-claim-it movement of years past operated as if the one praying is in control, as if if I name this, if I claim this future for myself, I will have it. That's magical faith. That's faith that places the power of the words that I'm speaking and what I'm claiming. Prayer is powerful. It is powerful, but only because the one being prayed to is powerful. Prayer is not magic because we have no power in and of ourselves. We have nothing. Prayer is, in fact, it is expressed helplessness. That's what prayer is. It's saying, God, I have nothing else. I don't have anything in, in me. I need you. I need you to work on my behalf. I need you to be God because I'm not. True prayer seeks God himself and expresses my powerlessness in myself. And the problem with seeing prayer as a powerful tool in itself is that it takes a gift from God and turns it into a God replacement. A magical replacement of God. It seeks the results of God's favor over God himself. Finally, last way that we, we seek magical solutions is through what, what I would call irrational faith. Magical faith. T taking, for lack of a better word, taking foolish or stupid risks and having unreasonable expectations. T Dating an unbeliever and expecting God to keep you from being corrupted, saying, I'm going to save this person, and, I, and their lack of belief, their, their worldly living is going to have no effect on me. God will protect me from that. Making a purchase that you can't afford and expecting God to protect you financially. Going into tens of thousands of dollars in debt and expecting God to, to magically bring you out of it. Willingly neglecting reading the Bible or, or willingly neglecting prayer or willingly neglecting fellowship with God's people and expecting that God will maintain and grow your spiritual vitality. God is not a magical safety net. He's not a magical safety net. He is God. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not a safety net for you to cast yourself out in foolish risk and expect Him to catch you. He's the author of reason and logic. He's the author of sense and sensibility. 
He is the one who created the world to function like a well-oiled machine when righteousness reigns. But a world that breaks when sin and rebellion and foolishness interfere. The problem with magical faith is that it puts God in a place of serving our recklessness. Of of serving our laziness. It puts God in a place at worst of serving our disobedience. It asks the gift of his protection to live in the service of my sovereign will. What a dangerous thing. And it seeks the results of his favor over seeking him. Friends, we need to beware of our tendency to seek magical solutions and seek God. And this is not to deny the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is not to deny the reality and the expectation that we should have for God to work miraculously. But not to seek the miraculous as though it's an end in itself. We ought to seek God and expect Him to work according to His righteous power. Friends, this This is the danger, not reading Harry Potter. Now, I'll just make one quick comment on that. I know we're 20 years past this conversation in in our cultural moment, but it is helpful to know how to discern these these conversations surrounding pop culture. When When the next, whatever it is, the next Harry Potter comes out and everybody's going, you shouldn't read that, how do you respond Well, let's say this. First, the the Bible is full of symbols and imagery and fictitious stories intended to represent greater realities. Just think of Jesus' parables. Fictitious and representative stories intended to, to represent and depict deeper realities. Okay, my first comment here is follow your conscience on this issue. I'm not saying you should read, I'm not saying you shouldn't read these kinds of things. Follow your conscience. But is there value in, in imagination, in fantasy, in, in fiction, whether it's a movie or, or a book? Well, I want you to think, J.R.R. Tolkien, he once said, well, to- Tolkien, he was the author of Lord of the Rings, right? And he had a very good friend named C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote books such as the Chronicles of Narnia and the Space Trilogy and the Screwtape Letters. All those books full of magic and wizards and witches and demons and aliens. Works that are celebrated by Christians the world over. And J.R.R. Tolkien, he had this concept of the true myth. And he said this, he said, All of the world's greatest myths, legends, and fairy tales are fictitious, but not false. Since they echo a true myth. That is both grand story and real history. He's saying uh, fiction and imagination has the capacity to illustrate and to bring to life the grandest story. And I want you to just think for for a moment. If if you know a story such as Harry Potter, what we have here is an enemy who threatens to destroy as he pushes his wicked agenda. We have a hero character who seems unlikely and weak, yet uniquely powerful and driven. He's characterized by self-sacrifice, by mission, 
by the honor of his parents, the vindication of good and of friendship. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of others and the defeat of evil. We could possibly see in this an echo of a greater story. J.R.R. Tolkien also said, and I love this, is it not characteristic of fallen man that a steady smell of roses leaves them odorless? Imagination is necessary to rejuvenate meaning in life's critical realities. C.S. Lewis once said that, that a well-crafted story can be as valuable as a thousand theological words. So, more important than the symbols themselves are what's being symbolized by the symbols and the values and the virtues of the characters that the author would have you admire or root for and the characters that the author would have you root against. So, follow your conscience on these pop cultural issues, but see the value in, in stories to illustrate a greater reality. The, the great danger isn't reading a fictitious story like Lord of the Rings. The great danger is that we might actually engage in magical solutions in our lives, that we might actually seek the power of God apart from the power of God. That's the real danger. Saul looked for hope among the dead but in doing so, found nothing but death for himself. This is the danger of godless guidance. But not only is that dangerous, it is miserable. It is miserable. That's the second point today. The, the misery of godless guidance. Okay. There's something about this chapter that you might not have recognized at first reading, or even if you've read it a few times, you might not have ever recognized it. Chapter 28 actually happens chronologically in time before chapter 29. So, so the, the chronological order of these chapters should be chapter 27, chapter 29, chapter 28. And chapter 27 and chapter 29 are actually, they're actually one story. They're, they're all about David among the Philistines. And, and so the author sandwiches chapter 28 in the middle of that story about Saul. And you can know that this is true. Just a hint about it is verse 19. Sam, Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow you will die. So Saul's talking to the medium the day before the battle. Chapter 29 happens weeks before the battle happens. So why, why does the author intrude here in chapter 28. He does so because he wants to place David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma side by side. Okay? Catch this. By doing so, he is saying, don't worry your head about David. You must see something far more critical the author says, I interrupt this narrative to tell you that there is something far worse than being, than being caught among the Philistines, namely being cut off from all communion with God. That's what we see in this. 
Look at verse 15 of chapter 28. Listen to Saul's words. He says, I am in great distress. God has turned away from me. That is the misery of miseries. There is no greater misery than that. And friend, if you have communion with the living God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, friend, whatever you're going through, whatever it is, however hard it is, however painful the suffering is, there is something far worse than that. Do you realize that that all that you have suffered is not nearly as tragic as somebody moaning, God has turned away from me. And this isn't flippantly to say, yeah, well, I mean, it's not as bad as it can get. You've heard that counsel before in the midst of suffering. When somebody says, says that to you, you say, get out of here. Right? Well, it's not as bad as it can get. <laughs> Thanks. Or, 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 or somebody saying, there's always somebody worse off than you. Again, great, thanks. But it is to say, rather, believer, put your trials in perspective. Put your trials in perspective. This is saying to David, put David's trials in perspective. His situation is tough, but he still has God's favor. God is with him. Friend, God is with you. But you might say, well, well some, sometimes I, I do feel like God is silent toward me. Right? Have you ever felt that? H- how can I know if I've lost God's favor? How, how can I know if I have lost God's guidance? Well, let's just look at David. David, he's, he's the contrast to Saul, right? Saul, Saul continues to run from God. David, though imperfectly and, and, and needing grace and mercy himself, regularly runs to God. And he wrote most of the Psalms. And in many of the Psalms, he feels that very thing, feeling like God is silent toward him, like he's lost God's, gui- God's guidance. And in Psalm 30, verse 7, Psalm 30, verse 7, he says, By your favor, O Lord, get that? By your favor, you made me strong. But you hid your face from me, and I was dismayed. So David's feeling that. He's feeling like God God has become silent toward him. But his next words are so instructive for us. He says in chapter 30, verse 8, Psalm 30, verse 8, he says, to you, O Lord, I cry. He says, God, you've hid your face from me, but to you, O Lord, I cry. How different is that from Saul? It's a complete contrast. When believers are terrified at God's absence, They instinctively turn to the God they think has forsaken them and complain to him about forsaking them. David, again in Psalm 13, verse 1, he says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Which is, by the way, a psalm that just resonates deeply with our hearts. Hide that one away in your back pocket. Or in your heart. Believers instinctively turn to the God they think has forsaken them, 
complain to him about forsaking them. And then they go on having dealings with this God, crying to this God to answer because they have nowhere else to go and so continue clinging to him. Friend, the clearest evidence that God has not turned away from you is that even in his absence, you keep turning to him. If you have found yourself in the midst of of the wilderness of your life, turning toward him, wondering where he's going and crying out to him, the very fact that you're crying out to him is evidence that he's still with you. We may not know why God appears to be silent, but he's yet working. Oftentimes, it's years down the road when we look back on those moments of apparent silence and we go, oh, I see what God was doing. I see what he was doing. He never left me. He was so kind and gracious to me. And now I see. But in the moment when it's silent, cry out to him. And the fact that you would cry to him is evidence that he is still there. But finally, how can you know that God won't abandon you like he did Saul? How can you know that? Well, look down at verse 25, the very last verse in this chapter. Okay. After Samuel goes away, the medium insists on feeding Saul a meal. And he eats this meal. And then they rose and went away that night. Does that sound familiar at all? John 13.30, write it down, look it up this week. John 13.30, it's a verse regarding a man named Judas who sat at a meal with Jesus. And John 13.30 says, so after receiving this morsel, he immediately went out and it was night. Almost the same words. Why the mention of night? Surely, John and the author of 1 Samuel uh, do not intend for us to know the time primarily. The details in Scripture are critical. They want to tell us that it was night. Yes, it was night, but as they exited, it was like they exited into the outer darkness itself. And there's a mistake that, that, that you and I can make. The mistake of thinking that, that I'm not quite so clearly as bad as Saul or as Judas. But we have no more earned God. We have no more earned God's favor. We have no more earned his guidance than either of them. We have no more assurance that we will have his, God, that we will have his favor into the future. But there was someone else who entered the outer darkness. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus, hanging on the cross, hanging on to the last vestiges of life, he cried out, My God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? It is significant in the, in the gospel accounts that it becomes dark as Jesus hangs on the cross. It is the same symbolic darkness that Judas walked out into. It is the darkness of sin and judgment that Jesus bore on our behalf from God. It is the darkness of the loss of God's favor. It is the darkness of being forsaken by God because of sin. And so Jesus cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Friend, the glory of the gospel is that God's Son went through the darkness of God's absence for us. The darkness and the agony of God-forsakenness for us. Isn't Jesus' cry from Golgotha just like Saul's complaint in verse 15? God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Jesus uttered that same phrase for us that we would never have to utter it ourselves. By grace, through faith in him, we have assurance that he will never turn his face from us. Friend, at the battle of Golgotha, <laughs> Jesus walked into the outer darkness away from the Father's presence in order that you might walk in the light of life, however silent God might seem to you. What a sweet assurance that is. And if you have confessed him as Lord and placed your faith in him, then you never need fear being forsaken by God again. So even in the moments when God seems silent, seek Him. Not the results of His favor. Seek Him. And He will draw near to you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, You are a kind and gracious God. This is not a gentle passage. We might even say it's a fearful passage for the one who's walking in disobedience to you, for the one who has spurned your voice, for the one who has sought the power of God apart from the power of God, for the one who has prioritized the results of your favor over prioritizing you. But God, you gave yourself to us. You gave us your son. So that we didn't have to go search for him. You gave him to us. Lord, would you, would you help us to seek him first? And rest in the assurance of his cross that we will never again experience the forsakenness that Saul experienced in this chapter. It's in Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.